0: Chapter V of Great Astronomers, by Sir Robert S. Ball. Chapter V Kepler, While the illustrious Astronomer Tycho Brahe lay on his deathbed, he had an interview which must ever rank as one of the most important incidents in the history of science. The life of Tycho had been passed as we have seen. In the accumulation of vast stores of careful observations of the positions of the heavenly bodies it was not given to him to deduce from his splendid work the results to which they were destined to lead it was reserved for another astronomer to distil so to speak from the volumes in which tycho's figures were recorded the great truths of the universe which those figures contained tycho felt that his work required an interpreter And he recognized in the genius of a young man with whom he was acquainted the agent by which the world was to be taught some of the great truths of nature to the bedside of the great danish astronomer the youthful philosopher was summoned and with his last breath tycho besought of him to spare no labor in the performance of those calculations by which alone the secrets of the movements of the heavens could be revealed the solemn trust thus imposed was duly accepted and the man who accepted it bore the immortal name of kepler kepler was born on the twenty-seventh december fifteen seventy one at Weil, in the duchy of wurtemberg it would seem that the circumstances of his childhood must have been singularly unhappy his father sprung from a well-connected family was but a shiftless and idle adventurer nor was the great astronomer much more fortunate in his other parent his mother was an ignorant and ill-tempered woman indeed the ill-assorted union came to an abrupt end through the desertion of the wife by her husband when their eldest son john the hero of our present sketch was eighteen years old the childhood of this lad destined for such fame was still further embittered by the circumstance that when he was four years old he had a severe attack of smallpox. not only was his eyesight permanently injured but even his constitution appears to have been much weakened by this terrible malady. It seems, however, that the bodily infirmities of young John Kepler were the immediate cause of his attention being directed to the pursuit of knowledge. Had the boy been fitted like other boys for ordinary manual work, there can be hardly any doubt that to manual work his life must have been devoted. But, though his body was feeble— He soon gave indications of the possession of considerable mental power it was accordingly thought that a suitable sphere for his talents might be found in the church which in those days was almost the only profession that afforded an opening for an intellectual career we thus find that by the time john kepler was seventeen years old he had attained a sufficient standard of knowledge to entitle him to admission on the foundation of the university of tübingen in the course of his studies at this institution he seems to have divided his attention equally between astronomy and divinity it not unfrequently happens that when a man has attained considerable proficiency in two branches of knowledge he is not able to see very clearly in which of the two pursuits his true vocation lies his friends and onlookers are often able to judge more wisely than he himself can do as to which of the two lines it would be better for him to pursue this incapacity for perceiving the path in which greatness awaited him, existed in the case of Kepler. Personally, he inclined to enter the ministry, in which a promising career seemed open to him. He yielded, however, to friends, who evidently knew him better than he knew himself, and accepted, in 1594, the important professorship of astronomy which had been offered him in the University of Graz. It is difficult for us in these modern days to realize the somewhat extraordinary duties which were expected from an astronomical professor in the sixteenth century. He was, of course, required to employ his knowledge of the heavens in the prediction of eclipses and of the movements of the heavenly bodies generally. This seems reasonable enough. But what we are not prepared to accept is the obligation which lay on the astronomers to predict the fates of nations and the destinies of individuals it must be remembered that it was the almost universal belief in those days that all the celestial spheres revolved in some mysterious fashion around the earth which appeared by far the most important body in the universe it was imagined that the sun the moon and the stars indicated in the vicissitudes of their movements the careers of nations and of individuals such being the generally accepted notion it seemed to follow that a professor who was charged with the duty of expounding the movements of the heavenly bodies must necessarily be looked to for the purpose of deciphering the celestial decrees regarding the fate of man which the heavenly luminaries were designed to announce kepler threw himself with characteristic ardor into even this fantastic phase of the labors of the astronomical professor he diligently studied the rules of astrology which the fancies of antiquity had compiled believing sincerely as he did in the connection between the aspect of the stars and the state of human affairs he even thought that he perceived in the events of his own life a corroboration of the doctrine which affirmed the influence of the planets upon the fate of individuals but quite independently of astrology there seem to have been many other delusions current among the philosophers of kepler's time it is now almost incomprehensible how the ablest of men a few centuries ago should have entertained such preposterous notions as they did with respect to the system of the universe as an instance of what is here referred to we may cite the extraordinary notion which under the designation of a discovery first brought kepler into fame geometers had long known that there were five but not more than five regular solid figures There is, for instance, the cube with six sides, which is, of course, the most familiar of these solids. Besides the cube, there are other figures of four, eight, twelve, and twenty sides, respectively. It also happened that there were five planets, but no more than five, known to the ancients, namely, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. To Kepler's lively imaginations, this coincidence suggested the idea that the five regular solids corresponded to the five planets and a number of fancied numerical relations were adduced on the subject the absurdity of this doctrine is obvious enough especially when we observe that as is now well known there are two large planets and a host of small planets over and above the magical number of the regular solids in kepler's time however this doctrine was so far from being regarded as absurd that its announcement was hailed as a great intellectual triumph kepler was at once regarded with favour it seems indeed to have been the circumstance which brought him into correspondence with tycho Brahe. by its means he also became known to galileo the career of a scientific professor in those early days appears generally to have been marked by rather more striking vicissitudes than usually befall a professor in a modern university kepler was a protestant and as such he had been appointed to his professorship at graz a change however having taken place in the religious belief entertained by the ruling powers of the university the protestant professors were expelled it seems that special influence having been exerted in kepler's case on account of his exceptional eminence he was recalled to graz and reinstated in the tenure of his chair but his pupils had vanished so the great astronomer was glad to accept a post offered to him by Tycho Brahe in the observatory which the latter had recently established near Prague. On Tycho's death, which occurred soon after, an opening presented itself which gave Kepler the opportunity his genius demanded. He was appointed to succeed Tycho in the position of imperial mathematician. But a far more important point, both for Kepler and for science, was that to him was confided the use of Tycho's observations. It was, indeed, by the discussion of Tycho's results, that Kepler was enabled to make the discoveries which form such an important part of astronomical history. Kepler must also be remembered as one of the first great astronomers who ever had the privilege of viewing celestial bodies through a telescope. It was in 1610 that he first held in his hands one of those little instruments which had been so recently applied to the heavens by galileo it should however be borne in mind that the epoch-making achievements of kepler did not arise from any telescopic observations that he made or indeed that any one else made they were all elaborately deduced from tycho's measurements of the positions of the planets obtained with his great instruments which were unprovided with telescopic assistance to realize the enormous advance which science received from kepler's great work it is to be understood that all the astronomers who labored before him at the difficult subject of the celestial motions took it for granted that the planets must revolve in circles if it did not appear that a planet moved in a fixed circle then the ready answer was provided by ptolemy's theory that the circle in which the planet did move was itself in motion so that its centre described another circle when kepler had before him that wonderful series of observations of the planet mars which had been accumulated by the extraordinary skill of tycho he proved after much labor that the movements of the planet refused to be represented in a circular form nor would it do to suppose that mars revolved in one circle the centre of which revolved in another circle on no such supposition could the movements of the planets be made to tally with those which tycho had actually observed this led to the astonishing discovery of the true form of a planet's orbit for the first time in the history of astronomy the principle was laid down that the movement of a planet could not be represented by a circle nor even by combinations of circles but that it could be represented by an elliptic path in this path the sun is situated at one of those two points of the ellipse which are known as its foci very simple apparatus is needed for the drawing of one of those ellipses which kepler has shown to possess such astonishing astronomical significance two pins are stuck through a sheet of paper on a board the point of a pencil is inserted in a loop of string which passes over the pins and as the pencil is moved round in such a way as to keep the string stretched that beautiful curve known as the ellipse is delineated while the positions of the pins indicate the two foci of the curve. If the length of the loop of string is unchanged, then the nearer the pins are together, the greater will be the resemblance between the ellipse and the circle. Whereas the more the pins are separated, the more elongated does the ellipse become. The orbit of a great planet is, in general, one of those ellipses which approaches a nearly circular form. It fortunately happens, however, that the orbit of Mars makes a wider departure from the circular form than any of the other important planets. It is, doubtless, to this circumstance that we must attribute the astonishing success of Kepler in detecting the true shape of a planetary orbit. Tycho's observations would not have been sufficiently accurate to have exhibited the elliptic nature of a planetary orbit which, like that of Venus, differed very little from a circle the more we ponder on this memorable achievement the more striking will it appear it must be remembered that in these days we know of the physical necessity which requires that a planet shall revolve in an ellipse and not in any other curve but kepler had no such knowledge even to the last hour of his life he remained in ignorance of the existence of any natural cause which ordained that planets should follow those particular curves which geometers know so well kepler's assignment of the ellipse as the true form of the planetary orbit is to be regarded as a brilliant guess the truth of which tycho's observations enabled him to verify kepler also succeeded in pointing out the law according to which the velocity of a planet at different points of its path could be accurately specified here again we have to admire the sagacity with which this marvellously acute astronomer guessed the deep truth of nature in this case also he was quite unprovided with any reason for expecting from physical principles that such a law as he discovered must be obeyed it is quite true that kepler had some slight knowledge of the existence of what we now know as gravitation he had even enunciated the remarkable doctrine that the ebb and flow of the tide must be attributed to the attraction of the moon on the waters of the earth he does not however appear to have had any anticipation of those wonderful discoveries which newton was destined to make a little later in which he demonstrated that the laws detected by kepler's marvellous acumen were necessary consequences of the principle of universal gravitation to appreciate the relations of kepler and tycho it is necessary to note the very different way in which these illustrious astronomers viewed the system of the heavens it should be observed that Copernicus had already expounded the true system which located the sun at the center of the planetary system. But in the days of Tycho Brahe this doctrine had not as yet commanded universal assent. In fact, the great observer himself did not accept the new views of Copernicus. It appeared to Tycho that the earth not only appeared to be the center of things celestial, but that it actually was the center. It is, indeed, not a little remarkable, that a student of the heavens so accurate as Tycho should have deliberately rejected the Copernican doctrine in favor of the system which now seems so preposterous. Throughout his great career, Tycho steadily observed the places of the sun, the moon, and the planets, and as steadily maintained that all those bodies revolved around the earth fixed in the center. Kepler, however, had the advantage of belonging to the new school, he used the observations of tycho in developing the great copernican theory whose teaching tycho stoutly resisted perhaps a chapter in modern science may illustrate the intellectual relation of these great men the revolution produced by copernicus in the doctrine of the heavens has often been likened to the revolution which the darwinian theory produced in the views held by biologists as to life on this earth the darwinian theory did not at first command universal assent even among those naturalists whose lives had been devoted with the greatest success to the study of organisms take for instance that great naturalist professor owen by whose labors vast extension has been given to our knowledge of the fossil animals which dwelt on the earth in past ages now though owen's researches were intimately connected with the great labors of darwin and afforded the latter material for his epoch-making generalization yet Owen deliberately refused to accept the new doctrines. Like Tycho, he kept on rigidly accumulating his facts under the influence of a set of ideas as to the origin of living forms, which are now universally admitted to be erroneous. If, therefore, we liken Darwin to Copernicus and Owen to Tycho, we may liken the biologists of the present day to Kepler, who interpreted the results of accurate observation upon sound theoretical principles in reading the works of kepler in the light of our modern knowledge we are often struck by the extent to which his perception of the sublimest truths in nature was associated with the most extravagant errors and absurdities but of course it must be remembered that he wrote in an age in which even the rudiments of science as we now understand it were almost entirely unknown it may well be doubted whether any joy experienced by mortals is more genuine than that which rewards the successful searcher after natural truths. Every science worker, be his efforts ever so humble, will be able to sympathize with the enthusiastic delight of Kepler when at last, after years of toil, the glorious light broke forth, and that which he considered to be the greatest of his astonishing laws first dawned upon him. Kepler rightly judged that the number of days which a planet required to perform its voyage round the sun must be connected in some manner with the distance from the planet to the sun that is to say with the radius of the planet's orbit inasmuch as we may for our present object regard the planet's orbit as circular here again in his search for the unknown law kepler had no accurate dynamical principles to guide his steps of course we now know not only what the connection between the planet's distance and the planet's periodic time actually is but we also know that it is a necessary consequence of the law of universal gravitation. Kepler, it is true, was not without certain surmises on the subject, but they were of the most fanciful description. His notions of the planets, accurate as they were in certain important respects, were mixed up with vague ideas as to the properties of metals and the geometrical relations of the regular solids. Above all, his reasoning was penetrated by the supposed astrological influences of the stars and their significant relation to human fate. Under the influence of such a Farrago of notions, Kepler resolved to make all sorts of trials in his search for the connection between the distance of a planet from the sun and the time in which the revolution of that planet was accomplished. It was quite easily demonstrated that the greater the distance of the planet from the sun the longer the time required for its journey. It might have been thought that the time would be directly proportional to the distance. It was, however, easy to show that this supposition did not agree with the fact. Finding that this simple relation would not do, Kepler undertook a vast series of calculations to find out the true method of expressing the connection. At last, after many vain attempts, he found, to his indescribable joy, that the square of the time in which a planet revolves around the sun was proportional to the cube of the average distance of the planet from that body the extraordinary way in which kepler's views on celestial matters were associated with the wildest speculations is well illustrated in the work in which he propounded his splendid discovery just referred to the announcement of the law connecting the distances of the planets from the sun with their periodic times was then mixed up with a preposterous conception about the properties of the different planets. They were supposed to be associated with some profound music of the spheres inaudible to human ears, and performed only for the benefit of that being whose soul formed the animating spirit of the sun. Kepler was also the first astronomer who ever ventured to predict the occurrence of that remarkable phenomenon, the transit of a planet in front of the sun's disk he published in sixteen twenty nine a notice to the curious in things celestial in which he announced that both of the planets mercury and venus were to make a transit across the sun on specified days in the winter of sixteen thirty one the transit of mercury was duly observed by gassendi and the transit of venus also took place though as we now know the circumstances were such that it was not possible for the phenomenon to be witnessed by any european astronomer in addition to kepler's discoveries already mentioned with which his name will be associated his claim on the gratitude of astronomers chiefly depends on the publication of his famous rudolphine tables in this remarkable work means are provided for finding the places of the planets with far greater accuracy than have been previously attainable kepler it must be always remembered was not an astronomical observer It was his function to deal with the observations made by Tycho, and, from close study and comparison of the results, to work out the movements of the heavenly bodies. It was, in fact, Tycho who provided, as it were, the raw material, while it was the genius of Kepler which wrought that material into a beautiful and serviceable form. For more than a century, the Rodolphine tables were regarded as a standard astronomical work, In these days we are accustomed to find the movements of the heavenly bodies set forth with all desirable exactitude in the Nautical Almanac and the similar publication issued by foreign governments. Let it be remembered that it was Kepler who first imparted the proper impulse in this direction. When Kepler was twenty-six, he married an heiress from Styria, who, though only twenty-three years old, had already had some experience in matrimony. Her first husband had died, and it was after her second husband had divorced her that she received the addresses of kepler it would not be surprising to hear that his domestic affairs did not appear to have been particularly happy and his wife died in 1611. Two years later undeterred by the want of success in his first venture he sought a second partner and he evidently determined not to make a mistake this time indeed The methodical manner in which he made his choice of the lady to whom he should propose has been duly set forth by him and preserved for our edification with some self-assurance he asserts that there were no fewer than eleven spinsters desirous of sharing his joys and sorrows he has carefully estimated and recorded the merits and demerits of each of these would-be brides the result of his deliberations was that he awarded himself to an orphan girl destitute even of a portion Success attended his choice, and his second marriage seems to have proved a much more suitable union than his first. He had five children by the first wife, and seven by the second. The years of Kepler's middle life were sorely distracted by a trouble which, though not uncommon in those days, is one which we find difficult to realize at the present time. His mother, Catherine Kepler, had attained undesirable notoriety by the suspicion that she was guilty of witchcraft years were spent in legal investigations and it was only after unceasing exertions on the part of the astronomer for upwards of a twelvemonth that he was finally able to procure her acquittal and release from prison it is interesting for us to note that at one time there was a proposal that kepler should forsake his native country and adopt england as a home it arose in this wise the great man was distressed throughout the greater part of his life by pecuniary anxieties finding him in a strait of this description the english ambassador in venice sir henry wotton in the year sixteen twenty besought kepler to come over to england where he assured him that he would obtain a favourable reception and where he was able to add kepler's great scientific work was already highly esteemed but his efforts were unavailing kepler would not leave his own country he was then forty-nine years of age and doubtless a home in a foreign land where the people spoke a strange tongue had not sufficient attraction for him even when accompanied with the substantial inducements which the ambassador was able to offer had kepler accepted this invitation he would in transferring his home to england have anticipated the similar change which took place in the career of another great astronomer two centuries later it will be remembered that herschel in his younger days did transfer himself to england and thus gave to england the imperishable fame of association with his triumphs the publication of the rudolphine tables of the celestial movements entailed much expense a considerable part of this was defrayed by the government at venice but the balance occasioned no little trouble and anxiety to kepler no doubt the authorities of those days were even less willing to spend money on scientific matters than are the governments of more recent times for several years the imperial treasury was importuned to relieve him from his anxieties the effect of so much worry and of the long journeys which were involved at last broke down kepler's health completely as we have already mentioned he had never been strong from infancy and he finally succumbed to a fever in november sixteen thirty at the age of fifty-nine he was interred at st peter's church at ratisbon though kepler had not those personal characteristics which have made his great predecessor tycho Brahe such a romantic figure yet a picturesque element in Kepler's character is not wanting. It was, however, of an intellectual kind. His imagination, as well as his reasoning faculties, always worked together. He was incessantly prompted by the most extraordinary speculations. The great majority of them were in a high degree wild and chimerical, but every now and then one of his fancies struck right to the heart of nature, and an immortal truth was brought to light." I remember visiting the observatory of one of our greatest modern astronomers, and in a large desk he showed me a multitude of photographs which he had attempted but which had not been successful. And then he showed me the few and rare pictures which had succeeded, and by which important truths had been revealed. With a felicity of expression which I have often since thought of, he alluded to the contents of the desk as the chips. They were useless, but they were necessary incidents in the truly successful work so it is in all great and good work even the most skilful man of science pursues many a wrong scent time after time he goes off on some track that plays him false the greater the man's genius and intellectual resource the more numerous will be the ventures which he makes and the great majority of those ventures are certain to be fruitless they are in fact the chips in kepler's case the chips were numerous enough they were of the most extraordinary variety and structure but every now and then a sublime discovery was made of such character as to make us regard even the most fantastic of kepler's chips with the greatest veneration and respect chapter five